I think running a safe and reliable railway in the face of climate change is the is is the challenge of a generation, and we have changed the way we run the railway a lot. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart, a writer and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. And in every episode, we seek to bring you up to date with the most engaging stories and interviews from across the world of transport. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades studying policy developments in transport. So, Mark, what have we got today? Hello, Christian, and hello to our listeners. Our featured items today are an extended interview that you've recorded with Alex Hines, who's the Managing Director of Scotland's Railway. We also have a piece on the issue of e-bike hire schemes and how these are changing and affecting life in our cities. And then we'll finally turn to look at further developments in relation to HS2 and a possible private sector initiative to get the project back on track. Calling All Stations is the transport podcast for the whole of the UK. And we're always keen to understand initiatives that are being taken in the nations and regions of our country. This is why Christian has recorded an extended interview with Alex Hines, who's the Managing Director of Scotland's Railway, to see what initiatives are being taken by the railway industry north of the border and what lessons might be learned for the rest of the United Kingdom. With me is Alex Hines, the Managing Director of Scotland's Railway. And I particularly wanted to talk to him because of the experience in Scotland of uh, integration, because Alex actually works for both Network Rail and ScotRail, and also uh, the fact that Scotland has a transport strategy. And I was wondering whether there are lessons for uh, a future Labour government about the way that things are run in Scotland. So welcome to Calling All Stations, Alex. And... um, Let's let's start with uh, that precise point. Actually, you know what uh, what your job is, how, how it came about, and um, how it's working out. Uh, well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. So, yes, um, I've got the great privilege of being the managing director of Scotland's Railway, and it's a unique position in sort of GB rail terms because I get to run track and train together. And the start of that, I guess, was the Scottish government and Transport Scotland as the uh, agency for transport in Scotland, see the railway as a system. Uh, and many of your viewers, I'm sure, uh, will know Bill Reid, the Director of Rail at Transport Scotland, uh, and uh, you know a lot of what ScotRail and NetRail does uh, is a result of you know his very long tenure and successful tenure at Transport Scotland. So um, back in uh, 2014, when the previous ScotRail franchise was contested, uh, Bellio bid a deep alliance between uh, truck and train, uh, a bid an alliance managing director, so one person to oversee both. Uh, and that arrangement started in 2015. So the initiative came from, from a Bellio, did it? A Bellio and Network Rail right. uh, decided to enter into an alliance agreement with each other as right. part of Transport Scotland procurement and Transport Scotland chose Abellio as the successful bidder. 
uh, and I wasn't around at the time, but I understand that one of the things that Transport Scotland really loved about Bellio's bid was the fact that uh, there was a deep alliance and one person to oversee track and train. This was about I, the same time that there was uh, an alliance at Southwest Trains, wasn't it? which was not entirely successful, actually, which is interesting. Yeah, th- th- that's right. And certainly, you know, Tim Shoveler, uh, you know, he and I met when I got this job to 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 extract the maximum learning from that experience, what worked and what. He was you... the boss of Southwest Trains at the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and the and the and the alliance when they put it together with Network Rail. So I I arrived in Scotland tw- uh, in 2017, which was six and a half years ago, um, and so I was appointed by Network Rail and Abellio to to run. Uh, Scott Rail Alliance, and then when um, the Ballio Scott Rail ended, and the Scottish government chose to um, nationalise Scott Rail, um, it was decided by the Scottish government and their arm's length body, uh, Scottish Rail Holdings, who are now the owners of Scott Rail and indeed Caledonian Sleeper, that we should keep the alliance between track and train, and indeed keep one person overseeing the delivery of both Network Rail Scotland uh, and Scott Rail. So um, it's kind of become the way we work now. Uh, and actually, I think sometimes we struggle to articulate the benefits of it because it's so, you know, it's, it's just the way we work north of the border. Do you know what I mean? It was completely different from uh, uh, the way south of the border, but it, it's obviously it's it's become the norm. And so tell me how it works, because, for example, one of the questions is, if you want to make changes into the timetable or some infrastructure, where do these decisions come from? Where where do they start? Well, as you quite rightly pointed out, Scotland has a transport strategy. And in that strategy, it sets out a hierarchy of modes with, you know, private car at the bottom, that's bad. Walking, wheeling, cycling at the top, that's good. And public transport being in the middle. And the transport the transport strategy is designed to achieve certain aims of the Scottish government. So, for example, to reduce inequalities, to promote inclusive economic growth, to take climate action, for example. So everything we do with the railway in Scotland, whether that's in ScotRail or in Network Rail Scotland, is designed to deliver those objectives which are set out in the transport strategy. So, you know, I always say we're more than a railway, yeah? Um, Because what we're interested in is what railways do rather than, you know, the rail sleeper and ballast and trains and all that good stuff. So one of the things, you know, obviously Network Rail manages the infrastructure and uh, Scott Rail manages the operation of the trains. But, you know, how many things can you change in UK rail without actually getting track and train to work together? Answer, not many. And therefore, you know, we have a, a an exec in Network Rail Scotland and we have an exec in, in, in ScotRail. But, you know, every four weeks, I chair a, a joint executive meeting of all the Network Rail Scotland directors and all the ScotRail uh, directors. So if there is something happening on our railway which touches both track and train, we discuss it there. If it's only about ScotRail, if it's a discussion around ScotRail's IT policy or, you know, Network Rail's 
people strategy, we don't discuss it jointly because, frankly, we don't need to. But if it's about the management of the railway system, we tend to work together uh, and meet together and decide together. Uh, and what that helps is when proposals go forward to Transport Scotland, they represent the views of railway management across the track train divide. And we, we believe that means we make better decisions more quickly. Well, I've always been a supporter of integration and, and it was one of my reasons why I opposed the, the, the start of uh, privatisation that we got in the, the 1990s. But um, there are obviously there must be tensions within this sometimes. There, 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 uh, is there stuff that doesn't work as well uh, as maybe the system south of the border or, or would you advocate that this is definitely the way forward for any future uh, railway in uh, south of the border? So, well, the first thing to say is it, it's not perfect, but we would argue that if you look at what we deliver for our customers, we tend to benchmark better than other places. So if you look at customer satisfaction or revenue growth or train service performance, the things that people really care about when it comes to a railway, uh, we're generally you know, industry leading in, in this space. So what matters is what works, yeah? And, you know, there have been some highs and lows with the alliance. Um, and, for example, when I arrived in 2017, my predecessor had integrated lots of bits of ScotRail and Network Rail uh, together. Um, and it didn't work very well. And actually, I consciously uncoupled some parts of the alliance and made the alliance shallower just to get things to work. Um, uh, have you so, got examples there? Uh, so, yeah, I mean... You know, they'd appointed one finance director to oversee the finance teams in ScotRail and the finance teams in, in NetRail Scotland. Right. And it just didn't work. So obviously, ScotRail is a company in its own right. Network Rail Scotland is not a company in its own right. Network Rail Scotland is a bit of Network Rail Infrastructure Limited. And of course, we have this fragmented rail industry and quite a lot of the money flows between the parties are actually regulated. So even if we wanted to change how we, uh, you know, move money between track and train, actually, we, we can't, you know, and the other thing is, of course, Scotland's not an island, never will be. So um, one of the key things that we believe enables track and train to work better together is alignment. So I'll give you an example. On train service performance, which at the end of the day is the thing customers want more than anything else. Absolutely. Obviously, we care uh, first and foremost about safety, um, but often, you know, most passengers take that for granted. We don't, of course. But the thing customers want more than anything else is they're trained to run on time. The timetable is, is the promise we make. And whether you're in ScotRail or you're in Network Rail, we have the same performance target. So Transport Scotland has created an environment in which it sets both its delivery partners the same target on performance. So our target on performance is 92.5% uh, measured by the public performance measure. And so every four weeks, uh, we get in a room, uh, all the railway managers from ScotRail and, and Network Rail, and we say, right, how do we uh, improve performance to get to that target? In that meeting, you can't tell who works for who. 
Right. It's just it's just a bunch of brilliant railway managers trying to get the train to run on time. Now, south of the border, it's not like that, uh, and I know that. Yeah, you've worked south of the border until 2017, uh, yes. So south of the border, um, it may be that Network Rail has these regulated targets. It may be that the train operating company has got these targets in its franchise agreement or national rail contract or whatever we call it these days, and they're misaligned. And so they're still sort of arguing about, well, what's the currency and what's the level and we're not funded for this and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That is a dynamic which just does not exist north of the border. So Transport Scotland has created an environment whereby it's really, really clear what it is we're expected to do. Do you think that it would be possible for uh, a government south of the border to, to create that sort of structure? So in certain parts of the network, yes. Where there is a high degree of overlap between track and train, yes. So if you think about Anglia, Kent, Surrey, Sussex, Western, Wales, yes, it would be relatively straightforward to set aligned targets. Where it becomes much, much more difficult, obviously, is East Coast Mainline, West Coast Mainline, where it's always going to be a busy multi-user uh, railway. Therefore, it's very difficult. So what I would say is Scotland is a good example of how track and train can work together it's not necessarily a template which can be rolled out everywhere but it it, it it is a relevant case study for those parts of the network where there's a high degree of overlap between track and train yeah you, you've uh, highlighted kind of as it were discrete bits of the network there that are kind of clearly identifiable whereas uh, the east and west coast main lines and probably the middle of main line as well there's so many different uh companies using those lines and, and so many different types of services that it would be difficult to do that. But it might it might be feasible, but I can see that it would be difficult. What are the progress that you've made in Scotland? What are what are the kind of uh, good aspects? Because uh, obviously oh. you've lost passengers as a result of COVID. I think you're you're getting back there, but yeah. Um, you know what are the what are the successes? For example, you've you've had some reopenings, you've got an electrification yeah. program. Uh, I mean yeah. how are those progressing? Well, I guess there's today's railway and then there's tomorrow's railway, isn't there? So if you look at if you look at today's railway, um, performance uh, on the railway in Scotland is improving. As a result, our customer satisfaction is at record levels. Um, obviously, we've been industrial action free since March of last year when the dispute between RMT and Network Rail was resolved. And I must admit, you know, as a, as a railway person, that, that's great because it allows us to get back to running, you know, the basics of a railway and delivering for customers. Uh, and obviously, it's good for our people as well. So, um, customer satisfaction with ScotRail services is 91%. It's the highest on record. Right. And one of the most exciting things about that is we know we can make it better. So, you know, we want uh, ScotRail slash Scotland's Railway to the, be the best, you know, railway in, in Britain. We're also, uh, and ScotRail has been for the, the last two consecutive quarters, the fastest growing train operating company in Britain, uh, if you ignore the Elizabeth line, which I am. Um, and, yeah, that's um, a special case. <laughs> if you've got so, a spare 16 billion, you can build one, but yeah. 
we're, we're industrial action free. Train service performance is relatively strong, although we can always make it better. Customer sat is at record levels. And guess what? Customers are voting with their fleet feet. We're also doing loads of work around marketing, around revenue protection, investing, etc. Um, so actually we're you know performing and trading really, really well. And that's a you've, massive You've got trick. to experiment about peak fares, haven't you? Of kind of not having yeah. peak fares. Can you possibly yeah. explain to our listeners that? Because that's that's quite innovative. Yeah. Of course, I will. So anyway, the, the, the performance of the railway, I think, is massive credit to all the folk at Scott Rail and Network Rail uh, Scotland. Yes, you're absolutely right. So um, obviously, Scotland has some of the toughest decarbonisation targets in the world, net zero 2045. It's not just 2045 enshrining legislation, the trajectory to get there is there as well. And of course, you know, the service that we deliver to our existing customers what well, you know their customer surveys are coming back and says oh well you know that's quite good although we can make it better but of course a lot of folk find railways relatively expensive even even in scotland where fares on average are about 20 percent lower than the rest of the uk and therefore um the scottish government were keen to tackle rail fares not just from a cost of living crisis perspective, but also from a decarbonised perspective, because if we want to decarbonise Scotland, we need to drive modal shift. So the Scottish government announced uh, the abolition of peak fares for a trial period of six months. Uh, and we implemented that in October. So it was going to run from October to March. But actually, in the budget, which we had last month uh, before Christmas, the Scottish Government have already announced the extension of that peak fares trial for a further uh, three months until June uh, of this year. And obviously, you know, we were a bit nervous about what might happen when we abolish peak fares. Would it lead to overcrowding in the peak, et cetera, et cetera? So we very much between October and Christmas, we really... Um, uh, did a sort of softer launch, I would say, for that. Um, we expected it to cost ScotRail money and we expected it to make the railway busier and that's exactly what's happened. Uh, so the Scottish Government made available to us £15 million pounds worth of funding to compensate us for the loss of fare box revenue. And we've got about 4% busier overall. And we are in the process of evaluating what impact that trial has had on ScotRail. So has, Scot it, has it cost you money? That, that's a very key question. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, or the yeah. whole 15 million or? 15, yeah. We're expecting right. it broadly about 15 million within six months. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suggested to the team, you know, all the modeling we do in advance will be wrong, but actually the very clever people who did the modeling predicted pretty accurately what's actually happened um so um actually we're from this week we're pushing off peak all day quite hard because obviously in the autumn the railway is relatively busy in january february it's relatively quiet now particularly through to through to easter time so that enables us to promote quite aggressively off peak all day along the lines of reboot your commute and so Transport Scotland, <laughs> I like that. Trans Transport Scotland um, are are going to do the evaluation of, 
you know, well, those extra 4%, where do they come from? Was it the spare bedroom? Was it bus? Was it private car, et cetera? They're doing the multimodal evaluation. But, um, you know, the trains are busier uh, as a result, particularly in the peak, because, of course, some it's, it's generated some additional journeys, but it's also moved some journeys out of the off-peak into the peak for those people who wanted to travel in the peak but weren't prepared to pay them the price of it so they deferred their journeys so um and actually it's wonderful hearing people's personal stories because we didn't just abolish peak fares we also made all our existing off-peak tickets available in the peak so we do you know uh kid for a quid you know that that never used to be valid until 9 30 now it's valid in the peak and so you know people can say well i can have a longer day out uh you know in the museum or whatever, or I can travel further because I can start my journey earlier. Uh, people are saying, you know, this has changed, you know, you know, I'm now going to uni three days a week rather than one. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful on social media seeing the, the stories. So obviously fares always have been and always will be a matter for Scottish ministers because rail fares basically are a, a political choice uh, between how much money this, the taxpayer puts into the railway and how much money the passenger puts into the railway. Uh, and so uh, we will do the trial. Uh, we'll do our very best job uh, of it. We will do the evaluation from a ScotRail uh, perspective. Transport Scotland will do the evaluation from a, what did it, what happens okay. to the transport kit. And then, okay, so and then and then Scottish ministers will decide what they want to do after June. Right. So, a fifty million represents what in a six month of your what percentage does it represent about? So, so fifteen million in six months was the original cost of the trial. And what and percentage put, is that? Yeah. But to put that into context, our fare box revenue this year yeah. is forecast to be around three to five million. So if if you double the fifteen to take yeah, account, 30. yeah, this is this is my monkey maths doing. Yeah. You're at thirty million out of three two five, so you're not quite at ten percent, but you're not you're yeah. not kind of far off, yeah. So it's a it's a significant proportion of the fare box revenue for ScotRail, which has been foregone. But obviously, in Scottish government budget terms, you know, it's a smaller percentage, right. Okay, um, look, this is great, Alex. But we can't get away uh, from this interview without talking about climate change um, yeah. and the impact that's had on the railway. You've had some more landslips, I think, uh, recently. Of course, you had the, the terrible uh, uh, disaster three years ago um, when uh, uh, the, the, there was an accident as a result of um, the, the rain and the, the landslip, uh, which, which killed, I think, uh, three people, didn't it? Um, and uh, so I wonder, is that something that's uh, affecting you in particular? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, what happened on the 12th of August 2020 still weighs heavy on all our shoulders. Uh, and we owe it to the victims to reduce the chances of something like that ever happening again. I think running a safe and reliable railway in the face of climate change is the, is, is the challenge of a generation. And we have changed the way we run the railway a lot oh really as a result of what what sort of things have you done so so for example um we've 
done a complete drainage survey of all the drainage assets across Scotland. We've walked every mile of railway in daylight to make sure that the assets which are out there on the railway are what's reflected in the database. And then we've recruited more people to maintain, inspect, clean these drains because a lot of this is about the management of water. We, we now apply precautionary speed restrictions far more often than we used to do uh, to keep staff and customers uh, safe. And um, we believe uh, we're the first railway control centre in Britain to put full-time meteorologists into our control centre. So wow. we, used, we used to buy in the weather service. Um, and what we did was we hired our own meteorologists and they are in our control centre 24-7-365. And whether the weather is adverse and extreme or the weather is good, what they're doing is they're learning and also they're building relationships with our control team uh, so that when we get these weather events and these one due this weekend, we can make timely decisions to keep people safe. So if you look at what happened in October, where we had two red weather alerts in a week, so we made decisions to suspend service on some parts of the network we made those decisions early uh, which means we were able to communicate them to our customers uh, and the public which meant that we didn't have customers stranded on trains we didn't expose our staff to the need to travel to work or respond to events in a red weather alert area and you know whilst it was very disruptive we were very proud of you know what we did that week to keep people safe our staff and customers but also people informed and of course the, this climate change uh, thing is not a big long-term trend in the last 10 years mean rainfall in scotland has increased by eight percent that's quite a lot uh yeah particularly as uh west coast is pretty ready already so extra well, there is pretty uh has a big impact we've we've, we've done an enormous amount and you know we we need to be industry leading in this respect. Okay, th thanks a lot, Ash. Just a last uh, a last parting thought. Then, I mean, are you optimistic about uh, the the growth of the railway and 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 the future and being being able to uh, be supported by uh, the Scottish government to to continue um, reopenings and that and the like? I'm incredibly positive because you know um, the Scottish government loves what railways do and so you know we're opening new stations we're building new lines and one of the things we need to do both in scott rail and network rail is to make sure that we remain efficient so the scottish government continue to invest in 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 the railway so for example we we're electrifying the railway between glasgow and east kilbride and we're doing that efficiently we can build new stations in scotland for 15 million pounds a pop uh, and you know, we're op we're opening two new stations uh, this year, uh, and of course, you know, in June this year we'll be launching a new service on on the Levermouth branch, which will really change the life chances of everyone who lives in that part of the world, and hopefully create uh, an area where people are more likely to live, you know, work, study. We're connecting a bit of Fife to the capital, uh, and it's you know it's brilliant to be part of. Right. Yes. I mean, uh, one of the things that prompted me to do this interview, in fact, was the, was the story I told you about the fact that I was in a 
uh, suburban station in, in Glasgow at kind of uh, half past 10 at night and, and uh, took a train into Queen Street. And of course, there was nobody on the little station. But there they were, the, your revenue protection people at kind of nearly 11 o'clock at night, demanding my £2.50 uh, to, to pay my fare, which I was really impressed with because, you know, on, on the, the network in, in, in uh, England, much of the time you never get asked for a ticket and and i've gone from liverpool to london without even being ever asked to to, to uh, uh, show my ticket and that's because of the the problems over the revenue collection the, the revenue going to the treasury and the and the costs coming out of the department of transport so you're you're clearly integrated there in a way that i think there are a lot of lessons to be learned so uh, thank you very much for the uh, interview alex and uh, um Good luck uh, in, in the forthcoming months and years. Thank you. I'm delighted to hear we got your money. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. By £2.50. Well, I did th find that absolutely fascinating, uh, Mark, because uh, there's uh, quite a lot of initiatives that have been taken in Scotland that perhaps might point the way to what a future Labour government might do uh, for the whole of the UK. Do you think that some of that is translatable through to the rest of the country? I think one of the really interesting points you identified early on was the fact that there is a transport strategy in Scotland. And there are similar efforts being made in terms of establishing a transport hierarchy, a sort of hierarchy of sustainability by the Welsh government as well. But we don't really seem to have anything like that in England, even in the individual city regions of England, although I think some of the metro mayors and possibly the mayor of London are trying to, to move in that in that general direction. So to me, that was the, one of the first interesting points that came across was, was the idea of a strategy. And then, of course, uh, a central feature of your interview was this idea of the high level of integration in terms of management and decision making between the people operating the passenger trains and the people managing the infrastructure. Though, of course, you highlighted in the interview with Alex and in the interview with uh, Tim Shoveler uh, in a recent episode of Calling All Stations, how this actually brings with it sometimes its own problems. So we've been talking about the fares experimentation that's going on uh, within Scotland's railway, but there's a bit of experimentation uh, that perhaps you could call it that has been announced in the last few days, Christian, on one of the key Anglo-Scottish routes. So that's the LNER service between Edinburgh and London King's Cross. You've been trying to understand what's going on here. Uh, yes, it's it's not easy because this is very radical stuff. So they're trying to replace uh, the current fare system with with three fares, just three fares. So there will be advance which you'll buy, uh, obviously, for a specific train. And now the problem with that, of course, is that uh, a lot of the cheaper ones go quite quickly, and, and we don't know how many advanced tickets there will be. Then there's something called semi-flexible, where you'll buy a ticket, but you'll be able to use it for any train within 70 minutes, presumably either way, of uh, your uh, the journey for which you have bought it. And again, we don't really know how much those will cost and they will change according to the busyness of the train that you've kind of aimed at as it were um and then there's a third uh system 
which is any time, which is terribly expensive. It's nearly 200 quid between uh, London and Edinburgh, uh, you know, rather than that 87 pounds that you get uh, uh, off peak return at the moment. So uh, that does seem to suggest that lots of people are really paying a lot more. Now they've put this out and remember that LNER is, is one of the government kind of uh, run franchises. And they've uh, suggested that you know this is a simplification that people will benefit and so on. But it, it seems rather more than a simplification. It seems to be kind of increasing lots of fares surreptitiously um, and uh, it's somewhat the opposite of what's happening in Scotland. So, But watch this space, Mark, because I suspect there's been such a furore about it that these fares, which are supposed to come in on February the 5th, so very soon, uh, may well uh, be subjected to some change or, or development uh, between now and their introduction. Christian, I often think of you as Britain's keenest cyclist, but there are some forms of two-wheel transport that are giving you a bit of cause for concern. Uh, indeed, and, and this is the uh, e-bike hire system. Lime is the kind of main company involved, but there's others called Human Forest and Tear and whatever, operating uh, mainly in the big cities, especially London, but also uh, other big cities. And they t tend to flood their area uh, with these e-bikes, which are sort of reasonable, reasonably expensive, actually. I mean, you can easily tot up 10 or 12 quid on a four or five mile ride. Um, and there are kind of... Uh, season tickets available but nevertheless it's not exactly cheap and it's commercial but the trouble is that there's some issues about this first of all that sometimes the companies seem to actually put in so many bikes and lots of these then get uh, abandoned they're dockless so they're not like the santander bikes in london you could just you know stop where you want and, and leave them and you know there's actually one lying on the pavement outside the house now as i speak and i live in a residential area uh, of islington and uh, this has caused quite a lot of anger, particularly in, in, in central London, uh, about people tripping over these and, and getting in the way. And they're presented as green. They're presented as, you know, this is another form of sustainable transport. But actually, most people using them were either cycling before or walking before or using public transport. There's not many car users uh, are, are transferring over to them. Now, whilst you know, broadly, I'm in favour of them. I do think that there needs to be some regulation. Now, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, the government managed to find time to regulate pedicabs, which really are only an issue in, in Westminster and, and Soho uh, of anywhere in the UK. Uh, but they haven't actually looked at the issues of uh, e-scooters, which uh, are still illegal apart from in the trial areas although i think the police have stopped confiscating uh, e-scooters as they did at the beginning um and also these hire bikes which really need some form of of regulation i, th I think the lo local councils need to have deals with these hire bikes by which uh you know maybe they they pay for the franchise because in some areas they might well be profitable but it certainly in return the the bike hire people must ensure that users don't dump them everywhere and find the users who do or, or somehow clear the bikes up um, and uh, regulate for you know other kind of aspects about you know where they could be left and indeed 
in some areas, they are beginning to provide parking spaces for these bikes, but that involves taking away parking spaces for cars. I'm not uh, 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 adverse to that, but the problem is that, you know, car drivers might start arguing about it. So th there's a big issue here. There needs to be a debate about the future of these things. Um, and uh, again, you know, the, the government has been totally remiss in, in not kind of pursuing uh, issues about this and instead has focused on pedicabs. And so it is something that needs to be looked at. Uh, you know, it's potentially a useful form of, of transport, but, uh, you know, not kind of if it's going to uh, cause, uh, you know, our pavements to be littered with kind of uh, collapsed e-bikes that people trip up over. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, uh, it's not surprising that HS2 is not going away. And uh, there's a couple of aspects that have uh, come to the fore in the past few days. First of all, there's uh, amazing initiative by the mayors, Tory mayor, uh, Andy Street in uh, Birmingham, West Midlands, and uh, the Labour mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham. Uh, well, the two Andys have got together and said, oh, well, can we attract private sector investment for uh, HS2? And they're actually apparently going to have a meeting with uh, Mark Harper, uh, the transport secretary, about this. Now, I am slightly sceptical. Skeptical. Uh, I mean, Eurotunnel, that the tunnel was actually uh, privately built, but there was a lot of government support behind it in terms of the train paths that were sold off and, and, and so on. Uh, and really building infrastructure in, with entirely private sector money is unlikely. Now, whether they they did actually look at some sort of PPP, PFI deal, private finance initiative deal for uh, HS2 right in the early days, and they rejected the idea. So whether that is feasible to revive it, um, I'm slightly uh, doubtful about. But nevertheless, a good initiative. And but there's a contradiction here because, meanwhile, Mark Harper has announced the fact that the safeguarding for uh, what is known as Phase uh, 2A, which is uh, railway people call the Stafford Bypass, I mean, the section of track between uh, Hansacre, north of Birmingham, and uh, Crewe. And uh, this is uh, the, the government has now said, oh, we're not going to safeguard this anymore. We will allow the land to be sold off. In fact, I don't think that any land could be sold off between now and a general election. It, it, it's a complicated issue uh, and so on. But nevertheless, it sends a signal to people oh, that this project is entirely dead. And yet, on the other hand, Mark Harper's uh, ready to meet, uh, not least because one of the mayors is Tory, is prepared to meet these mayors and talk about uh, private sector uh, involvement. So, uh, you know, watch this space. So it's, a, it's an exciting kind of uh, uh, area to, to kind of uh, keep on. I mean, there, there is a big problem about what do we do about the remaining bit of HS2 that they're building, what I've called uh, the Acton to Aston shuttle, um, you know, which is not going to be a very useful railway. So, uh, you know, we something has to be done, but what it is, who knows? Calling All Stations, the transport podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on X. 
formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at All Stations Pod.